Hello and welcome to Brandcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan and I'll be your host for today. Today, we're joined by former Tanishta and current MEP for Dublin, Frances Fitzgerald. A parliamentarian for over 20 years, she served as a TD, a senator, as Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation, as Minister for Justice and Equality, and was the first Minister for Children and Youth Affairs. Prior to her entry into politics, Frances Fitzgerald served as chair of the National Women's Council and as vice president of the European Women's Lobby. In this episode, we discuss Ms. Fitzgerald's time in university, the impact it had on her worldview, how she entered politics, and how her career as a social worker influenced her political outlook. We talk about some of the defining political issues of her career, her current efforts in the European Parliament, and we delve into the effects of the controversy that led to her resignation as Tanishta and her subsequent vindication of any wrongdoing. We also touch on the history of women in Irish politics, Ms. Fitzgerald's political mentors, the most underrated figure in Irish political history, and much more. Frances Fitzgerald, thank you very much for coming on to Bramcast. My pleasure. How did your time in college define your worldview? Hugely. Um, I did a social science degree in UCD. And I really adored the subjects I did. I did philosophy and economics, French and history in first year. And then I focused on, you know, the social work, research, sociology and so on. And it's only later on when you're working on issues that you realise how much your experiences in college have actually formed a kind of a world view in you. So I did social work placements as well. I worked in a childcare centre. I worked in a home for older people. I worked in rehab. I ended up working in all those areas as a minister. Now, I never had this idea of going into politics or being a minister or anything like that when I was in college. I adored my social work and my degree and I had a great time in college. I think I came alive in college, actually, like a lot of people at that time. Um, Really enjoyed it. And then I did a master's in uh, the London School of Economics. And of course, that would have informed my worldview as well. I guess you could say the London School of Economics is a kind of a You know, it's such a a ground, it's such a place for ideas. And I did a lot of work on the origin of social problems and intervening in social problems. And my understanding grew of how society works. So I would say that my college influenced me hugely. And if not in college, then how did you first get into politics? Well, you know, not in college, certainly. I was quite shy and uh, I was a class representative, all right, so I can't have been that shy. Um, But uh, I was fairly shy, you know, as in my primary and second level schooling. And I would say even in college to begin with, but I did adore it and I had a great time both socially and, and, uh, you know, from a learning point of view. But so I didn't think there were obviously, you know, various branches of political parties active, I'm sure, at the time. But I was kind of much more involved in my studies and enjoying what I was doing. And I didn't get involved. I did get involved in free legal aid. I did do volunteer work with free legal aid. I did get involved in sports societies and I attended sort of other societies. But the people who were running them at the time, like yourself, I was in awe of, to tell you the truth. So I came back to Ireland. I remember before I went to London, going to a a public meeting Uh, where uh, Sean McBride, who was very famous at the time, organised by the Women's Council, spoke about world politics and disarmament and so on. And I remember that kind of, you know, I thought, how interesting. 
when I came back, uh, when I was in London, I got involved with a local group called the National Childbirth Trust, which was supporting mums, really. Um, I didn't know that many people in the area where I live. So I got involved in that. And that was a super, that's the first kind of organisation apart from college that I kind of took an interest in. It was about women having a voice in maternity hospitals more than they had at the time and even to this day. And then I came back and I think I just went to a public meeting that the Women's Political Association were having. And that was an organisation working to get more women involved in politics. Now, at that time, I had no personal ambition about politics, but I kind of thought we need to see more women, you know, in decision making generally at that time. It was just a general thought. I became chair of that organisation and then I was sent along as a rep to the National Women's Council and I became chair of that. And at that point, uh, that was, when was that? That was the late 70s. No, it was the late 80s. And um, I did a lot of lobbying at government ministers. So I remember going into the Dáil and it was the first time I'd been in there in the 80s. And I looked it down and I thought, there was hardly any women. I, I just couldn't believe it. Oh, it's crazy. And, I, you know, we lobbied the Minister for Agriculture about women and farming. We lobbied the Minister for Social Welfare about. We were really active as an organisation. So we had this linking into the political system, which was my first real direct contact with it. And I had joined Fine Gael when I was a young mum at home, but I only went along to one meeting. And, it, you know, I didn't, it didn't attract me at the time, just the way the meeting was being run. And there seemed to be a lot of arguments, which is kind of typical of local party meetings. And so I got involved in a, a women's equality through the National Women's Council. Then political parties, I was doing a lot of media, started approaching me saying, would you be interested in politics? The various parties wanted me to run in the locals. And I said, no, I'm continuing the work I'm doing. And then I'd finished my four years in the National Women's Council and I decided I got the opportunity. Gareth Fitzgerald asked me to run in Dublin, southeast Dublin Bay South now. And I ran there and I got elected after three weeks. It was the easiest campaign I ever ran. They got more difficult after that. Mm -hmm. So why did you why did you choose Fine Gael in the end as opposed to Fianna Fáil, Labour, the PDs at the time? Um, given that other parties had reached out to you to run? Yeah, I think I always liked Fine Gael. I liked Garrett. I liked what he was doing. I liked the inclusiveness of Fine Gael. I liked their approach to the EU, although I hadn't had huge experience of it, but I had started working at a European level as well. I liked the inclusivity in relation to the North and his vision of the North. Uh, and I think all of that just came together. And I think my parents, my father was in the army, so he wasn't active politically, but I think they were more Fine Gael than anything. You know, they were Fine Gael. So I think that was obviously a big influence as well, unconsciously almost. But I, I liked uh, Fine Gael's approach to the world, really, and social justice, of course. They were very big on social justice at that time as well. You entered politics around the time that the Eighth Amendment was ratified. How did that impact your early political career? Well, I kind of missed some of the more sort of vicious discussion around that. Uh, around that time, I was sort of like, I was having children. I had three children in the sort of 80s. And I was a bit more of a bystander at that time. But I did think, you know, I just thought it was extraordinary that a woman's life was being, you know, equated uh, at that time and putting, you know, with, with, with effectively an early pregnancy and putting it, into the constitution. I just thought there's something sort of really strange and wrong about this. But I actually missed that terrible time in Fine Gael when, you know, the, it was just so difficult for individual parliamentarians. And there was, you know, terrible, um, ugly scenes between 
parliamentarians and, and those who were supporting it. Who would you consider your greatest political mentor um, during your, the, early career, the early stages of your career? I tell you, I had a lot of friends who were involved in uh, equality generally and people who were kind of making a difference on equality, whether it was Sylvia Meehan in the Employment Equality Agency or the women I worked with in the National Women's Council, they were big influencers on me. The women working in the Rape Crisis Centre, the women working in the Irish Family Planning, all of those, mostly women, um, influenced me and I kind of saw their worldview. So I brought that with me into politics. I would say at that time, people who were very supportive to me were Alan Jukes. The, uh, you know, I remember him sending me a note in my first election campaign. You're probably finding things very difficult right now, but keep going. Uh, Garrett himself, although Garrett was not there when I went in, but like he was the one who approached me and sort of wanted me to run. And when I said I had joined Fine Gael, he said to me, oh, that's a great help, uh, because that was like a few years previously. And, and then I, I would have thought, Women like Monica Barnes uh, would have been very supportive to me. The late Jim Mitchell. Um, and then my colleagues that I got to know in, in the parliamentary party. You know, there were many of them. Um, Alan Chatter was there, of course, uh, doing amazing work. And so many of that era, like they were all very supportive, actually. Um, and the party headquarters as well. You know, and John Bruton appointed me to the front bench the first day. Uh, that I went into to politics. I was spokesperson for arts arts and the Gaeltacht. I went off and did Irish courses down in Dingle. So I was thrown in at the deep end in politics and it's very different coming from the world I'd come from to suddenly go into, you know, answering parliamentary questions and so on. And how did your um, your background as a social worker influence your policy once you were in government and in late stages when you became minister? Well, hugely. I think when people are starting their career, they never think that what they're doing at the start of their career, maybe it's going to be hugely influential later on or how it actually provides. And I would always say this to students, it provides building blocks for later life. And at the time, you don't quite know where those building blocks are going to take you. You really don't. But what I found was that the building blocks that I was exposed to um, as a social worker were absolutely fundamental to my work, believe it or not, as a Minister for Children and a Minister for Justice. So let me give you a few quick examples. The fact that I knew about legal aid, the fact that I had done a mediation course, I ended up doing mediation legislation. The fact that I worked with children and families in London and Dublin and young people who were disaffected, I ended up doing, and, and divided families, I ended up doing the Child and Family Relationship Bill. So there was endless examples of how my exposure over 20 years to social problems had an immediate impact on my understanding of the kind of legislation that was needed. So, for example, my work in equality uh, made me very uh, sensitive to the kind of legislation that was needed in terms of women in decision making. I was responsible for monitoring state boards. I was responsible for bringing in legislation that criminalised the purchase of sexual services. So everything comes together, actually. And I think a social science background um, is very helpful in terms of the business of government, actually, in the business of being a minister. Mm -hmm. And of course, as minister, you spearheaded the campaign for the children's rights referendum in 2012. As a consequence of that, how are, pre how are current generations of Irish children viewed differently in the eyes of the state than the children of generations that came before that referendum? Well, actually, totally differently when it comes to court cases. And the best person, the expert in this country in that is uh, uh, now a, a judge of the uh, circuit court is Geoffrey Shannon, who's written the book 
on uh, that law and uh, the, the consequences of the referendum. And basically it means that children's voices are heard, uh, that the children's needs can be really seen as a priority, um, that the long-term best interests of the child are to the fore, as opposed to broader family interests. It's the best interests of the child. So it has had huge consequences. And it's also about a human rights approach to children, that you don't see children as an appendix to somebody else. You see children in their own right as having, you know, uh, their own rights, uh, their own being, their own dignity and their own need to be taken seriously. And if you think about society, and particularly in Ireland, children are like, no more than with women, it's almost like an appendage, you know, as opposed to, uh, people with individual human rights. So that is the big change that the children's referendum symbolised. So see, in contemporary politics now, um, in 2023, uh, Fine Gael characterises itself as a socially liberal, um, fiscally con- um, centre to centre-right party. Do you worry about the party being outflanked on the right with um, a conservative, um, a socially conservative party and fiscally conservative, say, like the Tories in England? Not really. No. Because... You know, I don't think that those who support Fine Gael want to support a reactionary populist far right. And I don't think there's any danger that in Ireland we would be confused with a far right approach. We're far too centre. We're too centred, actually. And I, I don't ever see us going in that direction or being confused with those parties on the right. I do see it in some member states and I do worry about far right populism and distinguishing between centre-right parties and populist parties. And there is a real threat to democracy at present. There's a real threat uh, to our democratic states. And there is this unbelievable move to authoritarianism. And surprisingly, some of the research is showing that young people are looking for some authoritarian governments and supporting them. And I find that very strange. To what do you credit the lack of a far-right party in Ireland right now um, that has come to prominence, say, in France, Germany, other European countries. We don't seem to have the same um, support in, on the party level. It's, a, it's an intriguing question. I don't have the full answer to it. I don't think there's any leader who's captured the imagination of the population uh, who's a far-right leader. Uh, and I think there's a kind of a pragmatism to the Irish uh, that kind of would see through some of what's happening on the continent. Um but you have to be alert, you know. I'd never be complacent about it because uh, I, I read a brilliant article recently on paranoid nationalism and it's very easy to treat people as the other. You could be talking about race, you could be talking LGBTQI plus rights, you could be talking about, you know, women. Um, you could be talking about all sorts of things where you just, you, you see people as the other. And what leaders like Trump and Orban and quite a few others in Poland are doing they have this kind of, it's kind of clever in a way, but it's horrible. It's about characterising people they don't agree with, almost as the devil, you know, as the other, different from us. And that's their kind of calling card. And people identify with that. You see it in America. And you just have to be terribly careful. So any backlash on the rights I've talked about, you have to be absolutely alert to. Because if you're not, you can see that people might just go in that direction. Do you think that the kind of unique parochialism of Irish politics is a defence against the far right and portraying as the other because I don't know is it common in other countries for politicians to you know go to the local funeral it's hard to characterise someone as you know um, 
a tool of a big government when you see them at the funeral every week. That's a great uh, point. And when you asked the question, I was thinking of that, actually. I didn't say it. But I do think there is something in that with a smaller population. But you could say as Ireland becomes more diverse, we have to be more careful because some of that, you call it parochialism or really knowing you're a local, um, you know, uh, TD or parliamentarian. Um, Yeah, I think it has been a protection, whether it will be as our society you know, gets bigger as our population increases, as we're more diverse, that may not impact quite in the same way. Do you miss that aspect of politics now that you're an MEP, the, you know, the the localness of Irish politics? I do. I mean, I, I do love meeting people and I'm, you know, I'm an extrovert and um, I enjoy every event I go to. And I, you know, I get something out of every meeting I have, even though sometimes I kind of think there's too many of them. But um Yes, I do. So when I come back and attend events here, I love it. And I realize I'm missing quite a lot of them. Uh, but then you have a different experience in Europe. It's uh, It also has its advantages, you know, that you sort of don't take your head off as quickly in Europe. And you, um, it's much more, um, it's much more, uh, you know, you're coming to a consensus more of the time. It's, it, it's less adversarial. I mean, some of the nonsense I see in the doll, you know, that's adversarial. Um, it's it's not really because people believe it. It's because they decide to be, you know, the role of the opposition is seen as utterly adversarial and never the twain shall meet. And, mm-hmm. You know, I get a bit tired of that. So right now in the EU, you're, you're spearheading, um, you're a co-lead on the EU directive on violence against women. Um, you've mentioned in other interviews that this encompasses, you know, um, uh, cyber attacks and female genital mutilation. Yet there's resistance to what one might say is the, most important aspect of violence against women, which is rape. How is this happening that the EU is, is, doesn't want to put rape in that directive? It's very interesting. It's probably multifaceted. Uh, uh, what the council, that's the prime ministers around Europe are saying, is that it's primarily to do with legal, that it's an overreach by the EU. And really, rape is so complicated when it's heard in jurisdictions across Europe. The issues of consent, of interviewing witnesses, uh, if there is a witness, it probably isn't most of the time, um, taking of evidence, that it also varied, that it's an overreach to say we could have a European approach to it. But we don't say that about murder. Quite interesting, you know, and there's different systems dealing with murders across uh, Europe as well. So I do think that underneath the legal argument, there's sort of a complexity about rape that the member states want to keep at a member state level. Whereas our argument is that, look, if you travel around Europe, you should be entitled to the same level of protection if you were in that very sad situation where that awful crime was committed, that that countries would have the same understanding of what rape is and also use the concept of consent, whether or not consent was freely given. Are you confident that the directive will pass in the coming weeks? Um, I think it's very tough at the moment. I'm not sure what the final shape of the directive will be. We have a lot of resistance from very important member states like France or Germany, and they're all important. But, you know, if France changed their mind, that would be good. They're using constitutional arguments at present. Um, Whatever the legal advice the council got, and I've read it and I've seen it, it just seems to have shaped the approach at an early stage, and it's quite difficult to change it. So at a later point, we may be faced with a decision we have a directive on cybercrime, on female genital mutilation and some other sexual offences, but not rape. And that would be a huge disappointment. The parliament would be very, very, you know, you know, would find it very hard to accept that. 
I'd like to move on to your time as tarnished and your subsequent resignation um, and vindication of any wrongdoing. Uh, if it's okay, I'll give a brief overview to the listeners who sure. might be, um, and feel free to interject. Yes. So I think the controversy related to the smear campaign orchestrated by Angarda Shikana against the whistleblower Mars McCabe. Now, reports in the media, mistaken reports, said that former Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan had instructed her legal counsel to take an aggressive um, posture towards McCabe at the O'Higgins Tribunal, um, going as far to question his motivations. Now, Noreen O'Sullivan was subsequently also vindicated and exonerated of ever participating in that smear campaign. And you yourself um, were exonerated by Judge Charlton, who said um, you were entirely truthful in your um, explanations and that you did a selfless act to the country in resigning at that time. On a personal level, what was it like to have allegations that you knew were false to permeate the media? Oh, shocking. Absolutely shocking. I mean, to wake up every morning and to hear your name on every single uh, news uh, broadcast and to have these things being said again and again and to have in RT uh, particularly uh, uh, and elsewhere, you know, in many, many different programs, the same thing being said, which you knew was untrue because, you know, none of it was true. None of the allegations were true to see things being misrepresented. I went into the door. I tried to explain. I think Mary Lou said to me, you will have until the next morning. Um, it felt like a kangaroo court. Um, and then I went into the Senate. I gave very, very detailed explanations to try and get across what had actually happened, that the emails were just two emails, uh, that I'd never, ever interfered in the tribunal. Because to me, as Minister for Justice, interfering in a tribunal would be like going down to the High Court or the Circuit Court or any of the courts and taking, having an opinion on it. You would never do that. And I treated the tribunal like that. I had set it up, actually, which was ironic. So um, it was basically, though, the way I, you know, it was t your question was, what was it like? It was incredibly difficult. And it was like, you know, it was like a wave that kept getting bigger. And you were trying to fight this enormous sea of waves. And it got to a point where it just felt overwhelming that you could not fight it, even though my colleagues were supporting me. Then it became likely there'd be an election. So I then had to say, what would it be like for my colleagues who were only ministers for six months if they if we had to face an election again? Now, quite a few of them wanted to take it on head on and go for an election. But you can imagine. And then Brexit started coming into it. So you had commentators like Fintan O'Toole, for example, saying she has to go because Brexit is going to be sorted. Now, Brexit, you know, we're still sorting Brexit. So it was a huge political tsunami. And when you have that kind of, you know, almost like media mob as well, it's very difficult uh, to get the truth across. Actually, people aren't that interested. And of course, the key point, which people sometimes forget, is that uh, we were um, we didn't have a majority in the door. We were in an arrangement with Fianna Fáil. And for whatever reason, Fianna Fáil at that time decided they needed a win over Leo. And, you know, people like Jim O'Callaghan and Michal Martin, they decided they would go for me. So in that context, in a minority government, it wasn't possible for me to survive at that time. You know, you get this kind of, it grows and grows and grows, and then there's only one way to sort it. Were you surprised at the reaction of the opposition that they were, you know, politically gunning for your head? Oh, yes, I was very surprised because I'm not an adversarial politician. I'd always worked with the opposition. I'd always taken amendments in the Senate, in committees. I wasn't the type of politician who kind of was always thrown it back at them. Um, but at one level, it wasn't even about me. It was about the politics of the time. 
I happened to be in the headlights because, you know, there had been this, uh, I've described it as a tsunami. But the irony is that Noreen and myself came in. I had, I wasn't even in justice, by the way. People keep thinking I was in justice. I was in business when all this happened. Unprecedented that you've moved on from a, a ministry and, you know, you're brought back to issues around two emails. Um, which were misinterpreted, of course, as Charlton rightly described. So I was very surprised. Actually, I was shocked. I had been on a trade mission uh, the week before. So can you imagine going from a trade mission to trying to even grasp why this had become such an issue? It was primarily because Fianna Fáil decided they wanted to win. I mean, that was the bottom line. And of course, Sinn Féin started it. Did you ever get an apology from the opposition leaders? No, never, never. never. And I never will, I'm sure. It's not the way politics is done in Ireland. How about the media? Were you surprised that the... Because this was mainstream media. This wasn't yeah. just social media. That's right. No, I mean, uh, time moves on. You know, politics moves on. Nobody ever says sorry in politics, really. And uh, you just get on with it. And you can't kind of get... You can't get too hooked on it because you, you just wouldn't move on if you did. But it's quite difficult. I'm, I'm lucky. I often said, I'm lucky I don't suffer from depression. I'm lucky that I found out that I was resilient. And I, say, I would say for anybody going into politics... Or indeed into challenging, you know, careers. How do you build your resilience uh, instead of going under? Because, you know, and I always said at that time to myself, you know, I haven't lost anybody. I've none of, you know, nothing has happened to my children. So, you know, this is not as bad as what lots of people I know are coping with. So that kind of was what I said to myself. I didn't say it publicly, but I thought, you know what, I can get on with this. But it was, I was at the height of my career. So was Noreen Sullivan and two women's voices, two powerful women's voices were taken out of circulation by that whole event. Leo Bradford, the Taoiseach, expressed at the time his, his desire for you to return to top level politics. Um, why didn't you? Well, I, I wasn't asked. I see. So that was... Basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If and... I'd been asked, I would have gone back in mm-hmm. at the time. And subsequent to the affair, you... Um, you spoke critically of politicians using the shelter of parliament to engage in defamatory speech. Yes. Um, do you think doll privilege should be amended to stop that happening in the future? Well, I think what needs to happen is the parliament needs to have very clear rules when people, you know, say things because they have the cover uh, and they certainly should be made to come in and apologise and set the record straight. And there hasn't been enough of that. I think it's gone a bit better. I don't notice as much. You know, sometimes parliaments go through a kind of a period of, you know, a huge tension and things are said. And But I, 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 I did r- r- write about that. And what I said is, you know, uh, you know, people just don't take uh, the, the responsibility for the storms they create, you know, uh, and that's unfortunate. Pivoting a bit now, um, the first Irish woman to hold uh, a cabinet position was, of course, Countess Markovic in 1919. Yet Ireland went another 60 years thereafter without a single woman as a minister. How did Ireland go from being, you know, at the forefront of progressiveness of gender equality in 1919 to such a gap between any? Like, how, do, how should we look back in that period no, of Irish history? it's extraordinary. History? Well, patriarchy reasserted re- itself. The Catholic Church, I would say, was fundamental to it. Fundamental. Uh, the power of the Catholic Church, you know, direct sort of... You know, the more powerful the Catholic Church, the less powerful women. Uh, and that's that's been the Irish state. And that's what Irish women have had to fight, that narrow, restrictive view of women's role 
and uh, you know the women's exclusion from the church still I mean it's just so appalling it's one of the last bastions really so I think it's the combination of patriarchy male leaders who didn't take enough uh, notice and weren't supportive enough uh, of women and of course you'd have to look at all of the discrimination that was around at the time you know women had to leave their jobs up in the civil service public service up until a certain point 70s um, you know, no rights. I mean, I was on the second commission on, on women and that was in, uh, I think, 89 to 2002. And like we, we laid out the Bible of change that was needed. So there was a whole lot of factors. It was a subservient position of women. And of course, it was uh, around the world as well. That's why you had a feminist movement and that's why the feminist movement has grown and grown. And that's why you've had Me Too recently. And that's why you've had all those other movements about about equality generally. Let's face it. I mean, women weren't the only people, uh, you know, who were discriminated against in Ireland. I mean, so many other groups were just treated appallingly. And to still in the Irish Constitution to this day, the special place of the woman in the home. Yes. Do you think there's enough uh, urgency anymore to get that removed from the Constitution? I'm not sure, really. Uh, you know, it's there in the Constitution. It shouldn't be there. The problem with referendums is people often answer a different question to what they're asked. So what I'd like to see is a very big information campaign uh, before we have the referendum. We have to have all the answers to, to the questions like we learned with divorce uh, and other referendums. You have to show the difference it will make and you have to be clear what you're going to replace it with, if anything. And you have to be prepared for the arguments, you know, divorce, goodbye, daddy, you know. Mm -hmm. Would you prefer an Ireland where there were 10 times as many referenda or an Ireland where there were no referenda at all? At all? In the abstract. Yeah, well, you know, there's a few places have them a lot, isn't there? Switzerland and California and so on. I think you need to have a culture around it if you're going to do it. I don't know how well it fits into Irish. We have, as you said earlier, we have quite a local politics. People feel quite close, you know, they know who their politicians are. I'm not sure it's the way to go. I mean, it can be a kind of a populist distraction. I quite like the citizens' assemblies, though. I think they're quite interesting. And that's kind of a different kind of building up of democracy. But then you have to be careful as well, because you, if you have elected politicians, the Dáil is the place to make laws. But that consultation role around citizens' assemblies is quite interesting and developing, I think, around the world as well. Could you elaborate on that? Because some might find it strange that in countries without citizens' assembly that such a small sample set of the population has such wide and impactful consequences from their decision. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and, and we've yet to see whether actually, like we've had quite a few where the recommendations have been taken on board because it suited the political system. I've no doubt we'll have some, maybe even the drugs one, where actually there'll be more divided opinions and I wouldn't be as sure. That it's, I mean, it's not a dead cert that what a Citizens' Assembly says is going to be automatically done. I mean, it is a consultative forum. It's not anything else. So, um, And yet, I think as a form of participative democracy, we do need to be nurturing our democracy. And the Citizens' Assembly is seen as one of the places where that happens. I suppose another aspect of consultative um, capacity would be the Shannon, if you feel free to disagree. Um, in the past, when the before, around the time of the referendum to abolish a Shannon, you described the effort as demeaning. Is your opinion still the same? Yeah, I mean, I was very shocked when our party suggested we should get rid of the, the Senate. I was given very little notice. I had been consulted previously. I said, no, I don't think you should get rid of it. I think the public like it and it, you know, it does perform a role. I took some of the best amendments 
that I put into legislation. They emerged in in the Senate actually, and in the in the campaigns there, or in the work there. So um, yes, I haven't really changed my mind about it. I think I, the Irish public are used to both houses. What we have to make sure is that we have really good senators, good participants. It is kind of a stepping stone for many into the doll. I don't see much wrong with that. If you're contributing and making, a, you know, good, doing good legislation there, if you've expertise, I like to see experts going in there and whether it's defense or mental health or whatever. Could you be in favor of expanding the, the voting block for the Shannon? Oh, yes. I think that absolutely has to happen. I think it's surprising we haven't done it already. And how about the... Um the jurisdiction of the Shannon, should they be given more power as a, as a separate and almost equal chamber? No, I think the way it works at present is quite good. Who do you think is the most underrated figure in Irish political history? Gosh, that's a really big question. Now, I think I'd have to do a history course before I can really answer that. The most underrated person in Irish political history. I think a lot of people are actually underrated. You don't, it, politics isn't the sort of profession where individual achievements are particularly recognized. I mean, you have the big kind of male leaders in particular, you know, who stand out, obviously. But there's so many other people who've made major contributions. And we're not big on sort of saying X made this contribution or Y made that contribution. And, um, you know, I think of somebody like Maura Gagan Quinn and I think about what she did, uh, you know, uh, on equality and LGBTQI rights. I mean, I remember that uh, in the Dáil and like she was in a very traditional party and she came in and did something quite extraordinary at that time. I mean, you know, she does get recognised for it uh, and I just pick her out. I mean, somebody like, you know, Monica Barnes did absolutely wonderful work in terms of women's voices in the dole and trying to really increase that. But I, I'm sure there's lots of people I'm just not thinking of right now. But um, and it goes along a little bit with, you know, we're a little bit, we can be quite disrespectful about politics as well and get stereotyped very easily. And that kind of, if you like, um, not really looking at what individual people have done kind of goes with that territory. You kind of do it and you're gone, you know. If you were to put one book on the Irish educational curriculum that would be mandatory for every student in Ireland to read, what would it be? Oh, gosh, this is another one of those very difficult questions. One book that would be mandatory for every student to read. Now, I'll tell you what, I'll go contemporary on it. I'll say an area that's really interesting for me as a woman is the invisibility of women in research. And we're here in Trinity, sort of one of the places where research is done. There's a new book out called Invisible Women about the lack of women's voices and experience and genes and everything else called Invisible Women. And that really summarizes that sort of everyday misogyny, everyday sexism that still permeates much of the way we look in the world. So that's a very interesting one. I think it would be very thought provoking for young students uh, for everyone uh, to have a look at that. Now, I'm sure there's far more thoughtful books and, you know, broader books that I could uh, think about. But just if you want me to give a contemporary lens to that question, that's where I'd go. Invisible Women. Invisible Women. What topic do you think about every single day? Um, I think about equality an awful lot. I, I, I think about that everyday misogyny, everyday sexism, I, I kind of, I'm very alert to it. I, you know, I'm not paranoid about it, 
but I'm very alert to it and I see it when I'm often in a room, not so much now, but I used to be in a room full of men and maybe one or two women. And I kind of say, how come the men, you know, aren't more conscious of this? Why aren't they making more efforts to change it? Like, I'm very conscious if I'm in a room. I mean, I like a balance, obviously. But if I'm in a room and, I, you know, it's sort of, or I look at a panel and you rarely see it now, but you still see an all-male panel. I kind of think, my God, like, are people not working on this? So I'm very alert to it. I'm alert to the sports pages of the Irish Times or the Indo when I see 30 photographs of uh, male stars and I see maybe one woman. You know, so I'm kind of monitoring that quite a lot. You know, it's just deep in my uh, in my DNA to kind of keep an eye out for it or indeed against, you know, other communities as well. Notwithstanding the progress that has yet to be made, is the Ireland of 2023 better or worse than you expected in terms of gender equality than when you first got into politics? Better or worse than what I expected? Well, it's definitely slower in some areas, uh, particularly women in decision making, 22% in the dole particularly in violence against women, particularly in the use of pornography. Um, but of course, women's own resilience has grown, uh, women's voices, women's place in Irish society. Legally, it's so much better. So there's huge areas of improvement, the confidence of younger women, uh, despite some of the challenges, they still face the cooperation of men. I think male champions are really important. And I think we have far more male champions now than we had uh, back when I started, we need far more of them, actually. We need male leaders to be much more conscious of equality and just absolutely take it in their stride and and, and do more and prioritise it. You see it a little bit more, but not as much as I'd like to. So it's definitely better in many areas. But there's we still live in what I call an unfinished democracy uh, with the advent of AI, with the advent of uh, tech skills. That's where all the jobs are going to be. We are replicating some of the inequalities uh, that we see in life in the tech area. So we have to be very careful about that or that would be a really new area of inequality. Francis Fitzgerald, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was our conversation with Francis Fitzgerald. If you enjoy the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.